0: Balper and the 2 on the Brass. I'm Carson Sestuli, and this is Fangraphs Audio, as he does on most Mondays. Dave Cameron joins us on this Monday. And what follows, we discuss the U Darvish announcement pending for this evening. I ask Cameron if there's any way that a team could acquire Darvish without overspending on it. Cameron answers that question as he does many other questions, i.e. expertly. On that note of overspending, we look at a couple of ex-twins outfielders, Michael Kadair and Jason Kubel who have, in the last week, received contracts in excess of what we might consider their fair market values. After that, we play Nobody's Favorite Game, Baseball America Questions, in which I ask guests to Fangraphs Audio to answer certain questions from the most recent edition of Baseball America. Riveting, indeed, if the attentive listener notices a persistent beep throughout the audio to follow and a couple of breaks in reception, let it be known that that's actually because Dave Cameron recorded this edition of Fangraphs Audio from a hospital bit, making this one of the grindingest, scrappiest editions of Fangraphs Audio yet. Without any more hesitation, though, allow me to direct your attention to this edition of Fangraphs Audio right now. Darvish, as far as baseball stuff goes, His, here's here's a question I have. Yeah. Uh, Dar- yeah. the 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 Darvish and, um, deal, there's I guess the winner of the Darvish bid, and it seems as though Nippon Nam fighters are going to be wait Nippon. Nippon <laughs> uh, Nam fighters are going to be accepting whatever bid uh, this evening Eastern Time. In it, 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 from what I've heard, it's going to be in excess of. The $51 million that Dice K received?
1: That's the report, yeah.
0: Yeah. If that happens, is there any way that a Darvish deal would even approximate market value? Or is whatever team ultimately would sign him if that indeed did happen, would it just be like a total overpay?
1: I mean, I think if you sign him for fifty million, or if you pay fifty million to get him, you're, you're, at that point you're not going to be able to offer him like twenty million. You're not going to say like, okay, we paid seventy, the players only get yeah, like twenty of that. So I think they're stuck giving him something like the DK deal where they get six fifty or you know five forty or something. I mean, it's, it, he'll get a lot less than market value, obviously, but the total package is going to be ninety to a hundred million dollars, maybe more than a hundred million dollars. And I mean, personally, I think that for a free agent pitcher, that's uh, or for a pitcher with very limited uh, sample to go off of and, you know, no good way to know exactly how good he's going to be, $100 million bucks is a crazy bet.
0: Right. And and the two teams that have been rumored to sort of be in contention uh, for, for the winning bid are both uh, the Toronto Blue Jays and Texas Rangers. And those are teams that we think of generally as having some of the smarter um, – and more progressive front offices in the league, and it, it, I guess it's curious that they would be attaching themselves, especially the Blue Jays, who it, you know at least until recently have been sort of at a uh, have not necessarily had the income or the the payroll with which to work. Uh, that those would be the two teams attached to the to the Darvish bid.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with the Blue Jays, and, uh, you know, I don't want to speculate too much about what their motivations may have been, but I think with the Blue Jays, there is some incentive to make sure that he doesn't end up with the Yankees and Red Sox. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that the Blue Jays' high bid wasn't genuine if they are the high bid and that they're not going to negotiate in good faith. I'm sure that if they put up 50 million or whatever it is to, in order to try and get him, they'll actually try and sign him. But I think that, you know, from their perspective, it's not the end of the world if they made fifty million dollars and then lowball him with a contract and say, you know, here's we'll give you thirty million over the next six years and if he doesn't want to take it, well he's not a the Yankees of Red Sox, and that's not the worst thing in the world for the Blue Jays. So, you know, whether the 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 Blue Jays looked at the the Yankees as a potential landing spot for Darvish and said, Hey, look, if we bid for him and don't get him, at least he didn't end up on the Yankees, um, you know, I think that at least probably played into their decision to go after, and bid as strongly as it appears that they did.
0: In terms of a deal that Darvish would be willing to accept, does it really just need to be a little bit more than a Japanese team would be able to pay him?
1: Well, I mean, I think Patrick Newman calculated that he's going to make somewhere between eight and ten million dollars, uh, you know, U.S. whatever the conversion is to. Yen uh, next year, and then he'll get you know a couple of raises before he's eligible for free agency. So for the next few years, he's going to make something close to like, you know, twenty five, thirty million dollars, uh, and then he'd be eligible to come over and make whatever the market demanded without there being a posting fee. So I, th- I don't think that uh, Darvish would be all that incentivized to sign for five or six million dollars a year with a major league team. He'd essentially be costing himself money, and then he would lose the big paycheck that he would get if the posting fee went away. So. Um, I think, you know, from a realistic standpoint, teams aren't going to be able to offer him uh, 6.30 and expect him to sign it or anything close to that. I mean, they're going to have to pay him $10 million a year, uh, you know, for several years in order to get him to consider coming over. Uh,
0: you mentioned uh, you did a, a piece with regard to the pool holes contract um, regarding the effect that big ticket free agent signings uh, do or do not have on attendance, driving attendance or you know, uh, other sorts of revenue, and what you found, well, first of all, you dismissed the idea of added revenue from, you know, jersey sales, merchandise generally, because all that money is, um, that's pooled and split among the, the 30 major league teams, and then beyond that, there's the idea of attendance, which it, it seemed to you found there was not really, there's perhaps a spike um, within the first year, but in, after that, it, it's it's considerably more tied to a team's fortunes. Is that, uh, is it different when signing? Do we know if it's different when signing a big Japanese free agent?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's definitely uh, more. So, like, the Mariners with Ichiro have seen a lot of Japanese tourists come over and schedule vacations around being able to watch Ichiro play, and, you know, they've been able to generate uh, more ticket sales through uh, basically tapping into a market that they weren't able to tap into. So, there's probably some justification for. Uh, Japanese players creating a little bit more of an attendance boom than American player. But I will say that with a pitcher, that's going to be significantly harder to uh, really kind of achieve. I mean, you're, if you're coming over from Japan, you're not going to be able to plan three or four weeks in advance when you Darvish is going to pitch, whether he's going to pitch on the road, whether they're going to skip a start, whether he's going to come down on the short shoulder. I mean, are you going to fly from Japan to Toronto to watch Yu Darvish pitch? when you don't really know what day you're going to pitch. Are you going to buy tickets to six games and hope he pitches in one of them? I mean, like, it's a logistical nightmare to try and travel over here to see a guy pitch versus pl- an everyday player who's going to be in the lineup almost, uh, you know, with regularity. And so I, I wouldn't uh count on any pitcher really increasing ja- uh, international attendance all that much. And, you know, we do see the attendance spikes on Sunday w- when pitchers uh take the mound but it usually is borrowed from other days so if got if people want to go see a good pitcher pitch it just won't go when the bad pitchers pitch so it's more reallocation of attendance than an attendance increase
0: are you speaking as a seattle mariners fan <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think you you know if you if you're gonna go to a Mariner game, you're gonna go with the day that Felix was pitching, not the day that anyone else was pitching. I mean, it's just uh, all, uh, common sense to some degree. And so, you know, I think uh, if you can grow attendance, that's one thing. But if you're just borrowing, a game someone would have gone to anyway. It's not really a revenue game.
0: Okay, actually, another Japanese player um, was just uh, his his bid was accepted. Or sorry, I should say another. Major League Teams bid was accepted for a different Japanese player. That's Nora Chika Aoki. I believe that's how you say his name. An outfielder uh, playing for Yakult, uh, Yakult Swallows in the um, NPB. Brewers won that bid uh, for a considerably more modest $2.5 million. Uh, and he actually, even though uh, according to Patrick Newman, he's not quite the hitter that he has been in years past, he could still be of some benefit to a Brewers team that could be Sands, Ryan Braun uh, for the first 50 games of the season, in that also uh, he may not be the sort of player who de- absolutely demands to start after Braun returns.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this, uh, when we did the podcast about Braun, where we talked about the Brewers basically needing an outfielder who they could be okay starting for two months and then could move into a reserve role, and Ioki probably, uh, fills that role. I mean, there's reports that they're gonna see him in Arizona before they even offer him a contract, so they might not get a deal done with him, but he would seem to fit that that mold of a guy who they could play at the start of the season, kind of get an idea for what he was. And then, you know, if uh, he's, you know, fantastic the rest of the year, maybe they can move him over to center um, and get him some regular playing time there. And if he's not very good, then Ryan Braun comes back and he goes to the bench.
0: Now, uh, regarding actually the same Brewers team, um, the recently departed free agent or mostly departed free agent Prince Fielder uh, has had, uh, has not signed a a new contract yet. Um, I'm curious – we we've, we've talked briefly on this podcast about the effect that uh, becoming a free agent in the same year as Albert Pools, the effect that that might have on fielder signability. Would there be any um advantage for him to maybe take a larger one-year contract and then re-enter free agency next year?
1: I don't think so. I mean I I think more than the pool thing the the factor working against Prince Fielder is the fact that he's basically a designated hitter, which means National League teams are scared of giving him a long-term deal because no one wants to be paying for that body at 33 or 34, and uh, the Yankees and Red Sox already have their first baseman and designated hitters, and that's going to probably be true in a year as well. So, I think as long as those two American League teams aren't interested in bidding him up, and every National League team is scared of giving him a deal longer than five or six years, uh, he's going to be stuck with a limited market, and that's not something that's going to change next offseason or the offseason and after that, that's just the reality of Prince Fielder is a really large person who belongs at DH, and that limits his market uh, marketability. And so, you know, you know, I think he can weight all he wants, but unless he loses eighty pounds, it's not really going to change much.
0: Is that going to happen? Even uh, so, are you suggesting that that David Ortiz will probably be DHing for the Red Sox again in twenty
1: thirteen? Well, I mean, I think if Ortiz has another good year, they'll probably keep bringing him back. I mean, I don't think they're going to get rid of David Ortiz until he falls flat on his face. But even if they get rid of Ortiz, I'm not sure that the Red Sox are going to be all that interested in bidding up Prince Fielder when they already have Adrian Gonzalez and Fielder would essentially block the DH for five or six years. I mean, you never really know. Uh, what the, your roster is going to look like down the line and, and blocking off a position, uh, um, like DH gives you a, a lot less roster flexibility. If they decided they wanted to keep Kevin Euclid around and he has injury problems, they might want to rotate him through there and signing fielder would stop them from doing that. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, problems that are created by signing a full-time DH for a six or seven year deal, which is why most teams don't do it and they'll go year to year on their DH instead.
0: Now, um... Moving on, we saw in the last week or so a couple of uh, now ex twins um, signing free agent contracts with, I guess in this case both NL West teams. You wrote up Jason Kubel today. The title of your piece was something to the effect of uh, Diamondbacks, what is a downgrade with addition of of Kubel? Uh, what, what 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 was the what were the terms of that Kubel agreement, and, and why is it a downgrade?
1: Well, it sounds like he got two years and fifteen or sixteen million, uh, fifteen million over the next two years and then it sounds like there's some kind of buyout in the third year, uh, that I'm almost certain they're gonna wanna buy this deal out. So it'll probably be something like fifteen to sixteen million over the next two years. Uh, you know, Jason Kubel is... I just don't really understand the love of Jason Kubel. Even like when he was a free agent and people were talking about him as a big left-handed bat, if you look at, take 2009 out of the picture when he had a really nice year. Every other year of his career, he's been a slightly above average player, or a slightly above average hitter, and he's a defensive disaster. He's barely above replacement level. Uh, he had one really good year a couple of years ago when his babit and his power spiked, um But other than that, he's been a one-win player and uh consistently a one-win player. And, uh, you know, I think for a 30-year-old uh, old player skills guy who can't play defense going to the National League, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when the Diamondbacks already had Gerardo Parra who could play at least as well and maybe better than Kubel could have anyway, who they're now apparently going to move into a fourth outfielder role, but that doesn't really make any sense because Kubel needs a platoon partner and Parra is also left-handed. So they probably have to trade Parra for something and then go get a right-handed fourth outfielder. I mean, if they were really not convinced that Parra could hit, just go get a guy who could platoon with him instead and uh, leave whatever money you were going to spend on Jason Kubel and use it to upgrade the rest of your roster.
0: So, um, so, I mean, what do you think then is the logic behind that? Because Kevin Towers has also made some good moves. Um, is there something else Kubel is demonstrating that, that we can't see for some reason?
1: Well, the Diamondbacks, when you've got Chris Young and Justin Upton and Paul Goldschmidt and Aaron Hill, I mean, the the middle of their lineup is is pretty right heavy and the only lefty power bat is Miguel Montero. Stephen Drew has a little bit of pop, but he hits at the top of the order and isn't going to break up the lineup really. And Montero's a catcher, so you can't plan on him playing, you know, 140, 150 games a year. Um, so, they probably did need a little bit more balance in their lineup, and, uh, you know, I could have seen a decent argument for getting a left-handed hitting first baseman to platoon with Goldschmidt, who I'm not quite as high on as. Uh, some Diamondbacks fans maybe and say, hey, look, if we need a little more lefty pop, uh, you know, a part-time first baseman and a job share over there could have made sense. And, you know, even at three or four million, maybe Kubel could have been that guy. If you say, okay, I'm going to take him out of the outfield, put him at first base, let him share time with uh, Goldschmidt. And then if Parra's really terrible, maybe we move Kubel out there in the second half of the season. You know, I wouldn't have hated the deal if that was the thinking, but to bench Parra, uh, and take one left-handed bat out of the lineup just to put another one in there just to get a little more power. I think they're they're overrating the effect of adding Kubel's 15 or 20 home runs and underrating how, how important Parra was to their defense last year, which helped their pitching staff be significantly better than they should have been.
0: And then additionally, we have Michael kadire going to the Colorado Rockies for three years, $31.5 million, I think. Uh, looking at MLB depth charts, they they have him slotted at third base for the Rockies, uh, which might make sense for the immediate future, but they also have Nolan Arenado uh, arriving in the major leagues at some point, and it seems possible that Arenado, when he comes up, could be somewhere close to Kadir's in value. Uh, they also have an outfield with Carlos Gonzalez, Dexter Fowler, and Seth Smith plus a righty platoon player. Uh, what what's the value of the Kadir deal, and and why did he cost uh, almost uh, or maybe exactly ten million dollars more than Willingham over the same amount of years?
1: Yeah, Kadir is one of those guys who gets a lot of uh, boost from reputation. So he's considered to be a really good clubhouse guy and a, a leader, and he plays every day and he plays a lot of positions and he's flexible. So he gets uh, bonus points for things that uh, don't necessarily show up in statistics. And teams like to give him, you know, extra credit for being that kind of good guy, good leader type. Um, so he probably got overpaid based on some of that, or you know, he got more money than we would have thought based on some of those characteristics. I also just think this is the Rockies um, maybe being a little bit risk averse, and so my guess is uh, they're going to end up trading Seth Smith, who's you know more of a platoon guy, not an everyday guy. I think they were tired of job shares and they wanted the guy who they could just run out there every day and say, okay, now we're not going to make Jim Tracy think too hard. We're just going to give him an outfielder, and so I don't think Adair is actually going to play much third base. I think the report I heard is he was going to play right field with Carlos Gonzalez moving. Over to left field, which is bigger in Coors Field, um, and I think his range could play a little bit better there. He'll figure out a way to hold third base down until Arenado's ready. So, you know, three thirty is probably too much for Kadair. He probably should have gotten three eighteen or something along those lines. Um, it's not the world's worst overpay, but I, I think it's probably a situation where Kadair's personality got him more money than his talent would warrant.
0: And then, of course, uh, probably the the most notable. Aspect of this deal is that it blocks Charlie Blackman.
1: That is, of course, the only thing we should be talking about.
0: <laughs> Who will I don't know? Do you think Blackman will be uh, a fourth outfielder for the team, or will he start at Triple uh, A Colorado Springs?
1: Hold on, I don't think there's hold on Dexter Fowler yet either. So I think they'll keep Blackman around as uh, as uh, depth behind Fowler, and you know, if Fowler turns up oh. going forward, then you know maybe Blackman is uh, trade bait.
0: Okay. Oh, this uh, brings us to a, a part of the show uh, to which you haven't yet been privy, Dave Cameron. Are you excited?
1: Uh, I don't know whether to be excited or scared.
0: This is a segment we call Baseball America Questions. Baseball America Questions. All right. This is exciting. Yeah, and it happens on the day that I receive Baseball America at my house. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be not a coincidence. Uh,
0: well, no, but today is the day. uh so two other authors have gone through Baseball America questions and performed terribly. So <laughs> if, all you need is a is a is a decent showing to be the best at this. And okay. uh, today uh, this uh, uh, this edition of Baseball America that I have in my hands has the um, the publication's top ten prospects for the organizations in the American League East. Okay. American League East. And so the questions will be the question will be can you name the top prospect uh, per per Baseball America for each of the American League East teams. That is your task.
1: Um, well, start with the easy one. Uh, Tampa Bay is super easy with Matt Moore, right?
0: Let's. Yeah. Sorry, I was uh, I was in the bees. I was with Baltimore. Um yeah, Matt Moore. Yeah, Matt Moore. You you have Matt that. Moore
1: should be easy. Jesus Montero for the Yankees is another easy one.
0: Jesus Montero. That's two of two.
1: Uh, Travis Darnod with the Blue Jays.
0: Ooh, that's,
1: oh, yeah, let's see. Travis Darnod. That's three out of three. Okay, I can't take any credit for Montero and Moore. I mean, those are gimmies, right? Like, everyone in baseball knows who those two are. So. Yeah, okay. Um. So I got the Red Sox and the Orioles, right? Red Sox might be kind of tough. They have a sort of... Yeah, I mean, the Red Sox, I guess it's maybe Will Middlebrooks. You got, yeah, that's entirely correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Orioles. Probably Manny Machado.
0: No, in fact, Manny Machado and his mustache are number two. Wow.
1: Um, so the, if it's not Manny Machado,
0: it's this year. It's this year's um, uh, signing out of high school.
1: Oh, the good uh, Dylan Bundy. Dylan Bundy.
0: Yeah, that's right. Very good job, Dave Cameron. I, I mean, I guess uh, to be expected, seeing as you um, are the uh, the managing editor of FanGraphs. Um, but I mean, know. I would
1: hope that I could. I mean, I don't know. Just, I don't want to, you know, harp on the other guys doing poorly when these were pretty easy calls. I mean, you know, Darnold's the only one who's not like a household name or was a super high draft pick in recent years, and um, you know, even he's a pretty good prospect. So these weren't like. I don't think any of these systems are totally barren. you have to go way down the list.
0: Right. Hey, curious thing. Uh, just looking briefly at the Orioles, um, the Orioles top ten prospects. It appears as though rule five signing Ryan Flaherty immediately becomes the number seven prospect in the organization.
1: That's really sad <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, it's funny as I saw a piece today uh, um, I forget who was claiming it, but the the rule five draft is dead, and I know and I, that think heard...
1: John, and I think John Manuel wrote that piece actually
0: yeah, okay, right, for baseball america which but it's yeah. funny because at the same time you get a t- I guess it is the Orioles. Um, but they get they have a uh, you know one of the rule five picks actually ends up in the top ten. Flaherty's not bad, right? I mean he's decent.
1: Well, he's a utility infielder. He's a very low upside guy. I mean he's one of those guys you could look at and say, okay, well, I wouldn't mind giving him a couple hundred at bats, but he's very uh, his chances of becoming a starter are slim.
0: Yeah, it well I don't know. Yeah, they they've they've made some interesting signings I think since Duquette. I'm really a big fan of the Antonelli signing. Uh, obviously, <laughs> it might might have something to do with. My irrational t- taste for him, but, but there you go. Yeah, not, uh, yeah, not a bad job, uh, not a bad job at all, for you. Thanks. Where do you think, uh, where do you think uh, Nestor, uh, uh, who was the the player that the Nestor Molina? Yeah, Nestor Molina. Where do you think he would have ended up uh, had had he still been on this list for Toronto?
1: Um, you know, I think it depends. Like, Molina's another one of these guys who the numbers are better than what scouts say, and I think Baseball America will admittedly say they lean more towards the scouting end of things than the performer end of things, so my guess is he would have been toward the back end of the top ten. I don't think he's a guy they would have loved, um, but, you know, his stuff's not so bad that they would have, you know, written him off as a non-prospect, so I would have said probably in the seven to ten range.
0: Yeah, Uh. well, he's not like, I mean, he's not Yusemaro Petit or, like, David right. Hernandez deceptive, right? I mean, that's not... He's he's more gifted than those guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean Molina's 88 to 92 uh you know uh, there's been reports that he's hit 93 or 94 but he fits in the low 90s uh you know the secondary stuff's okay he's got multiple pitches he's got good command like he's not a bad prospect but he's not a a stuff guy you know out and out where he's throwing 95 all the time he's not your prototypical frontline starting pitching prospect i think most people see the stuff playing better in the the back end of a rotation um you know and so the most scouts i think are going to say that's a a limited upside profile and generally those guys don't rank super highly in baseball miracle lists
0: Alright, well, Dave Cameron, we're going to let you go now. Uh, do whatever it is that you have planned to do for the rest of the day.
1: Thanks. I'm going to sit here and stare at my uh, infusion that runs into my veins.
0: Ugh. Don't do that. Could you, uh, <laughs> don't you have like a, uh, like a t- television or something?
1: Yeah, there's a small TV, but I mean, really, what's fun to watch in the middle of the day, right?
0: Yeah. Can you use the uh, Hulu's or something? Hulu on your?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like there's, I guess there's stuff I could watch on Hulu or. But you know, I mean, we've talked about this off the air. As, uh, I'm not you the normal TV watcher, so it's not like I'm gonna go catch up on episodes of Parks and Rec or all these shows that everyone else finds funny.
0: You don't think Parks and Rec is good, or you just you don't? You doesn't have time I- for it.
1: After you challenged me and said that I would love it, I watched an episode. I didn't laugh once in thirty minutes, and I said, "This just isn't for me."
0: Oh my God! What it must be weird. What's it like to have no soul? Is it? <laughs> does it feel strange? <laughs> well, I've or? gotten
1: through thirty-one years so far, so I think I can apparently live without one. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't. I just don't. I don't find funny what everyone else still finds funny.
0: Yeah. What about um, what about um, human frailty? Like uh, people tripping or or. Uh... That sort of thing. Do you find that humorous?
1: You no, know, I like one of my favorite shows is the Dick Van Dyke Show, which is obviously you know slapstick humor at its best. One of the best shows of all time, I would argue. And uh, you know, so I think that there's humor to be found in good slapstick, but I I'm not like I don't take joy in watching someone get punched in the nuts on a regular basis. You sure you're only 31? <laughs> Dick, Dick Van Dyke <laughs> is your favorite show. Yeah, I'm 31, going on 75. Yeah, like, that's uh, right. You might watch, uh, I don't know,
0: maybe maybe this afternoon on TBS The Waltons will be on.
1: <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> Do you like The Waltons, too? I I actually don't like The Waltons, okay. but uh, I I, am, I, grew up watching things like F Troop, and I grew up, I didn't have a TV until I was 10, so when we got a TV, then I watched things that my dad watched, because he, he chose what to watch on TV, so I watched F Troop and uh, Hogan's Heroes and uh, Dick Van Dyke's show, and I thought all those were great.
0: Yeah. Hey, what do you think about? Are you familiar with? Uh, do you like any heist films? Are you a fan of heist films? Uh,
1: yeah, I liked the, um, you know, like the Italian Job at Huffgood. Good. Okay, know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, do you yeah. care for the Oceans films at all? I liked the first one. I thought Oceans Eleven. And I was okay with Oceans Twelve, and I thought Oceans Thirteen was just a money grab.
0: Yeah. Now I, I still even uh, I'm sort of person. I, I think those are some of the best movies. But I, I, you know, I could see that particular criticism. But um, I've recently become well, I don't know if I've become more interested or recently like identified my interest in heist films, and I've sort of been looking uh, for good ones, but I recently saw heist the David Mamet version and it's kind of like uh it's kind of like a um an uber heist film it has like the i think maybe the most churns of any heist film um okay yeah, so if you're interested in heist films, maybe consider that while you're just sitting on sitting doing nothing
1: yeah well do you think there's a place to watch uh I mean, I'm sure there are. If I if I put out a call for free places to watch movies on the Internet, I'm sure we'd be flooded with suggestions, but uh, I'll probably pass on uh, downloading illegal torrents uh, while I'm using the hospital's Wi-Fi network. Oh. Do you not have Netflix? Uh, I do have Netflix, but, uh, you know, looking through Netflix, I'm surprised at how few of their movies interest me.
0: Yeah. I actually kind of feel the same way. It's, it's a lot of disappointing. Actually, uh,
1: last week, the wife and I sat down to like pick out a nice movie, and we ended up having to watch uh, Sweet Home Alabama or some horrible chick flick because I couldn't find an appropriately decent not chick flick, so I got stuck watching that. Yeah,
0: well, that happens. Uh, kind of mad at Netflix. Yeah, you, you, what you need to, to do is when you get a minute, uh, just spend ten minutes filling up your queue a little bit so when that time comes, you'll have something uh, to turn to. If I might suggest the Poirot series, I don't know if you're familiar with Poirot, the Agatha Christie character.
1: I I don't even think I can spell
0: it. P O I R O T. Uh he's he's like a he's a Belgian detective, um, who is very funny. And uh he's played by this English actor, David Suchet, who's uh pretty good at what he does.
1: Okay. Poirot. Poirot, yeah.
0: Agatha Christie character. And uh good and they're like an hour each, so you can kill an hour.
1: Cool. If they're from like nineteen fifty, it's even better.
0: They they seem old. They actually take place, I think, in the twenties or thirties. Okay. Uh, last thing, if, do I have to, uh, am I doing anything wrong in charge of the site?
1: Or I don't think so. Uh, I did catch the tail end of that discussion about what we're doing about Darvish. Um, I do think that, you know, we did just do that piece on him on Friday. So if whatever we write, whatever Paul's going to write about Darvish, let's try and make sure it's different.
0: Yeah, actually, actually that was brought to, uh, to everyone's attention. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll do that. But, oh, and our listeners should know that we will have Darvish coverage this evening uh, after the announcement. So be advised, listeners. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's going to be it. Hey, Cameron, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for letting.
0: Yeah. You I'm just. <laughs> all right. It's a, it's a dramatic conversation with Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sustuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.